although the authorities say that they generally will deny their wickedness, to me, they've been readily admit, uh, ready to admit that they stole or killed or smoked or whatever. They themselves are quick to point this out, claiming that they have been caught precisely because they were honest, quote-unquote, criminals. The truly evil, they will tell you, always reside outside of the jail or outside of the cells across the wall. Clearly, these proclamations are self-justifying. They are also, I believe, generally accurate. People in jail can almost always be assigned some kind of diagnosis. And in layman's term, we could say that they are crazy or impulsive or aggressive or lack conscience. But really, um, they're not fall. the people that I think will be judged as evil don't fall into those uh, routine uh, pigeonholes of diagnosis. This is not because the, healthy, the evil are healthy. It is simply because we have not yet de devised or found um, a definition for their disease. I distinguish, therefore, between the people that will be evil in judgment and ordinary criminals that we judge as evil today. I also went to want to make a distinction between evil as a personal characteristic that will show up and evil deeds. In other words, evil deeds do not an evil person make. Otherwise, we should all be evil because we all do evil things. Sinning is most broadly defined as misty, mi missing the mark. Amartya is the word for this in Greek. This means that we sin every time we fail to hit the bull in the eyes. Sin is nothing more and nothing less than a failure to be continually perfect. Because it is impossible for us to be continually perfect, we all are sinners. We routinely, all of us, fail to do the very best of which we're capable. And with each failure, we commit a crime of some sort against God, against our neighbors, ourselves, if not, frankly, against the law. Of course, there are crimes of greater and lesser magnitudes. It is a mistake, however, to think of sin or evil as a matter of degree. It may seem less odious to us to cheat the rich than the poor, but it is still cheating. There are differences between, before the law between defrauding a business, claiming a false deduction on your income tax, using a crib sheet on an examination, telling your wife that you have to work late when you are unfaithful, or telling your husband or yourself that you didn't have time to pick up his clothes at the cleaner when you spent an hour on the phone with your neighbor. Surely one is more excusable than the other, and perhaps all the more so under certain circumstances. But the fact remains that they're all lies and betrayals. If you're sufficiently scrupulous not to have done such thing recently, then ask it yourself whether you've done it uh, in the past. And if you cannot answer yes to this, ask if you haven't lied to yourself or have kidded yourself or even been less than you could be, which is self-betrayal. Be perfectly honest with yourself and you will realize that you sin. If you don't realize this, then you're not perfectly honest with yourself, and that's in itself a sin. Sin is inescapable. We all are sinners. So, if the people that will be evil in the end cannot be defined, number one, by the illegality of their deeds, or number two, by the magnitude of their sins, then how do we define them? And the answer will be, I believe, by the consistency of their sins. Usually, 
<clears throat> while subtle, their destructiveness is remarkably consistent. It is because those who have crossed over the lines will be characterized by their absolute refusal to tolerate the sense of their own. Of their what? Of their own sinfulness. Let each man examine who? Himself. Let each woman examine who? Herself. More than anything else, it is the sense of our own sinfulness that prevents any of us that are here wanting to partake of the foot washing. It is the sense of our own sinfulness that prevents any of us undergoing a similar deterioration because all sins are repairable except the sin of believing one is without sin, which, according to 1 John, is something that makes God a liar and deceives us. A predominant characteristic, therefore, of the behavior of those I believe will be called evil in judgment today, a predominant characteristic is what I call scapegoating. Because in their heart, they consider themselves above reproach, they must not own, owning what there is in themselves, they must project it and lash out at anyone outside of them. They sacrifice others to preserve their self-image of perfection. Take a simple example. We attend a parenting class downstairs. Take a simple example of a six-year-old boy who asks his father, Daddy, why did you call grandmommy a dog? I told you to stop bothering me, the father roars. Now you're going to get it. I'm going to teach you to not use such bad language. I'm going to wash your mouth with soap. Maybe that will teach you to clean up what you say and keep your mouth shut when you're told. Dragging the boy, the boy upstairs to the soap dish, the father inflicts this punishment on him in the name of proper discipline. Evil has been committed. Scapegoating works through a mechanism that psychologists call projection. Since the evil, or those who will be evil deep down, cannot but feel themselves to be faultless. It is inevitable that when they are in conflict with the world, they will invariably perceive the conflict as the world's fault. Since they must deny their own badness, they must perceive others as bad. They project their own evil onto the world. Because they never really think of themselves as evil, they must, they can, they must see consequently much evil in others. The father perceived the profanity and the uncleanliness as existing in his son and took action to cleanse his son's quote-unquote filthiness. Yet, you and I all know that it was the father who was at fault, who was profane and unclean. The father projected his own both, his own uh, uh, things onto his son, and then he assaulted his son in the name of good parenting. Even evil, then, is most often committed in order to scapegoat. And the people I like... I think will be labeled as evil in the end of time are chronic scapegoaters. I once read evil defined as the exercise of political power, that is, simply, the imposition of one's will upon others by overt or covert coercion in order to avoid spiritual growth. In other words, the evil will have attacked others instead of facing their own failure. Let each man examine who? Himself. Let each woman examine who? herself, because spiritual growth requires the exclusive acknowledgement of one's own need to grow. If we cannot make that acknowledgement, that confession, in foot washing or in other ways, 
we have no option except to attempt to eradicate the evidence of our imperfection in others. Strangely enough, evil people are often destructive because they are attempting to destroy evil. As Blaise Pascal already noticed in the 17th century, listen to this one, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. Indeed, evil people are often destructive because they are attempting to destroy evil. The problem is that they misplace the locus of the evil. Instead of destroying others, they should be destroying the sickness within themselves. Let each man examine himself. Let each woman examine herself. As life often threatens their self-image of perfection, they are often busily engaged in hating and destroying that life, usually in the name of righteousness. The fault, however, may not be so much that they hate life as that they do not hate enough the sinful part in themselves. What is the cause of this failure to have self-hatred, this failure to be displeasing to oneself, which seems to be so central, the, central, the very central sin at the root of scapegoating behavior? which I call evil, and I think will be judged as evil. The cause is not an absent conscience. conscience. There are people that do not have conscience. They are diagnosed as such. But that's hardly the, the case with those that will be evil. Utterly dedicated to preserving their self-image of perfection, they are unceasingly engaged in the effort to maintain an appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. They are acutely sensitive to social norms and what others might think of them. They dress well, go to work on time, pay their taxes, and outwardly seem to live lives that are above reproach. While they seem to lack any motivation to be good, they are very good at doing good. Actually, the lie is not designed so much to deceive others as to deceive themselves. And as this must apply somehow even to us, who are engaged in this process of self-confession this morning with foot washing. It is important for us to realize that this lie is not designed so much to deceive others as to deceive ourselves. They, and sometimes we, cannot or will not tolerate the pain of self-reproach. The decorum with which they live their lives is maintained as a mirror in which they can see themselves rejected righteously, even as they would read such thing. Yet, the self-deceit would be unnecessary if the evil had no sense of right and wrong. It is not that they lack conscience. We lie only when we are attempting to cover up something we know to be illicit. Some rudimentary form of conscience must precede any act of lying. There is no need to hide unless we feel that something needs to be hidden. So we come to a sort of paradox. I have said that evil people feel themselves to be perfect. At the same time, however, I think that they have an unacknowledged, unconfessed, unputforward sense of their own evil nature. Indeed, it is this very sense from which they are frantically trying to flee. The essential component of evil is not the absence of a sense of sin or imperfection, but the unwillingness to tolerate that sense in oneself that acts out in projecting it on others and engaging in murdering act, uh, murderous acts this way.
It is not just blissfully lacking a sense of morality. It's being continually engaged in sweeping the evidence of evil under the rug, not just of other people's consciousness, but under the rug of their own consciousness. We become evil by attempting to hide from ourselves. Let each man examine himself and drink from that free cup of the Lord. Let each woman examine herself and freely drink from that free cup of the salvation of the Lord. Evil originates not in the absence of guilt, but in the effort to escape it. <clears throat> Many a time, we can recognize it by its very disguise. The lie that can be perceived before the misdeed it is, it is designed to hide. We see the smile that hides the hatred. The smooth and oily manner that masks the fury. The velvet glove that covers the fist. Because evil people are such experts at dis uh, disguise it is seldom possible to pinpoint the maliciousness of evil. But really, in each one of us, when we are aware of such plays, that's the Holy Spirit telling us that this may be at work in us. People that will be named as evil are not criminals. They're not any more sinners than you and I. They're not even avoiders of pain or lazy people in general. To the contrary. And many of us as Christians are very much in danger of this because we're not we're likely to exert ourselves more than most in our continuing effort to obtain and do what is good and evil people in trying to obtain this image of high respectability especially in the church setting they may be willingly even eagerly undergoing great hardships in their search for status either before god themselves or others it is only one particular kind of pain that the, those that will be deemed as evil cannot tolerate. And it is the pain of their own conscience, the pain of the realization of their own sinfulness and imperfection. I told you that this morning, I have the belief that each one of us is not part of that category. Each one of us, whether we'll do it outwardly in the foot washing or inwardly in some other ways, are willing to recognize that we are in need of a Savior, that we are in need of His salvation. That's why we have come here this morning. The judgment that has taken place at the, at the cross, we accept it as ours. We know that we can come here and freely take of this bread and of this wine and escape the judgment that will come only on those that refuse it. And so it is to encourage you that these were read. Not as a warning necessarily only, even though it is a warning as well. But it's an encouragement for us to keep ourselves where we ought to be. Each one individually at the foot of the cross. Let each man, let each woman, let me, let each one of us examine. Not others, but himself. And receive the blessing of forgiveness. If we confess, if we acknowledge our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. There's a room for men and for women downstairs in the fellowship hall and then there's a room for couples in the youth room.
We'll reconvene here within 15 minutes to conclude the worship with communion. God bless you. Hymn 159, first and last stanza, the old rugged cross. At whose feet we're all equal and all loved, just as we are, known and fully loved. In the preparation service, we expressed an admission of our sinfulness, our need for washing, as well as through serving one another in love, an intention to do this. But there's no way that we can have the strength to do this on ourselves. That's why now we are going to integrate in a physical way in our lives, Christ, through the symbols of his body. Let us bow our heads in prayer as the elders and deacons kneel for a prayer by Dave on the bread. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the examples that your Son, our Lord Jesus, has set before us. And Lord, as was said in the message, we all need to acknowledge our own sinfulness. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit. We thank you for the sacrifice on the cross, that old rugged cross, for our sins. You paid the penalty. You paid it all on the cross. We ask now for your blessing on these emblems of your body. And we just praise you for your great love for us, that you were willing to do all that and more, and to someday bring us all together in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread of life. As by heads, as the elders kneel, and as our elder gives a prayer on the wine and the cup. Our Father, there have been many deaths in this world since sin came into the world. But there's only one death that has made the difference for us, and that's of your Son. As we think of what Jesus has done for us as we drink of this symbol today. May we be aware that not only does that symbolize his death, but also as we go through this service, it symbolizes the life that he has given to us and that we will someday have with him for eternity. Amen. We ask that in this life, we may also worship you and follow you 
and do your bidding. Yes. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord is coming soon, Maranatha. We can see it everywhere. Let's drink this cup in joy. As we've taken these emblems, my heart is softened. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful to be, to be part of the Christian church of this particular congregation. I love, I'm filled with love for each other here. And I express my intention to let the Lord be in my heart, to love each other. Uh, the message that I gave in preparation was a message that can be strong. And I want to end with a total note of grace. As I express my intention, as you have expressed your intention, you have also taken of the Lord. But it is something that we can expect of ourselves, that we will fail here and there. Isn't that true? But will this fountain ever cease to have its power? Will this bread ever cease to be there for us? Will this washing of confession to God and to each other ever cease to have its power? Of course not. And so it's not to give you an encouragement or give myself an encouragement to go and do what we've done and what we are so prone to do. It's not to encourage you. But it's to say that when it happens, in smaller ways or bigger ways, you're forgiven ahead of time. The Lord has provided everything. And for you and me to take advantage of this and know that we are saved in him, it's just a matter of acknowledging. As long as we're willing to acknowledge, to admit, and to intend the Lord is powerful to save, isn't he? But let's close by standing together and singing the closing hymn with a strong, amen? A strong intention to, Lord, I want to be a Christian. I want to be more holy. I want to be more loving in my heart. And then at the close of this, we'll just go without benediction or prayer, but make sure you give a hug to somebody before they go out. Amen?